Romans chapter 1. What is your perception of mankind? How do you assess human nature and the condition of the human race? You know, without even thinking about it, we are really pressured, influenced to answer that question in keeping with our own individuality. There are some among us who are more optimistic by nature, maybe even romantic by nature. And we are pressured, in a sense, to look at the bright side. Such people see the wonders of people made in God's image. What do I believe about the human race? People are beautiful. And I celebrate that every day. And on some level, we can all say amen. More cynical types are influenced by the charms of criticism. Political pundit George Will did all cynics proud when he offered this memorable assessment. Quote, No matter how fast and far you lower your opinion of the human race, there is no keeping up with the reasons for doing so. The cynic speaks. And then bleeding off the page of maybe even reality. I spoke one day to a man who said he believed that the answer to the human problem, the answer to the human race, was to all be exterminated. I thought he was joking and then realized it was a chilling moment that he wasn't. Well, at the end of the day, our assessment of the human race is largely irrelevant, at least on its own merits. What matters is not how we want to believe about mankind. What matters is what God believes. And there is a long scale, a spectrum of those who have a very rosy, positive view of humanity to those who just want people killed. They've had enough. They want all destroyed. That spectrum really isn't relevant, what we think. We must bring ourselves to learn what God has said and to bend our opinions to the reality of His perception of humanity. A doctor who lies because he's afraid to disappoint a patient who has cancer and a doctor who treats a patient for cancer she does not have are both guilty of malpractice. What a doctor must do is render a truthful diagnosis. And what a judge must do is render justice based upon the facts. And in Romans 1, the judge of all the earth reveals his flawless assessment of the human race. Let's remember at verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This news about what God has done, it is this message, the power of God to save, to convert, to rescue Jews and Gentiles. That will play in far more, Lord willing, next week and through as we make progress into the book, the Jew and Gentile comparison. But for all, the power of God is made evident in the message of the gospel. For it, verse 17, is the righteousness of God. In it, is re- the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
those who are right with God, those who have a right standing with God, those who live out a life of righteousness, pursue that in faith. And this is the case as we move into verses 18 and following because of who we are and God's judgment of us, His discernment of who we are. So let's bring, though, verses 16 and 17, this good news with us as we consider verses 18 and following. We bring it with us, in a sense, looking at these verses with a twinkle in our eyes as believers because we know where Paul is headed. But let's make no mistake, this revelation of God's view of mankind is one of the darkest passages in the Bible. And it's no cold, calculating, academic view either. God is deeply and passionately affected by humanity's condition, as we see right away in verse 18. What we find here as we assess God's judgment, His view of humanity, is that God's wrath burns against mankind for suppressing His truth and denigrating His glory, dishonoring Him in that way. The first charge that we find in verses 18 through 20 is that mankind willfully suppresses the truth that God reveals about Himself in nature. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Holy anger flows from the pure heart of God toward humanity. His wrath descends, as it were, onto the heads of people who live ungodly, unrighteous lives. There's a wrath to come in the end, but that wrath, in a sense, has already begun to boil over and falls down upon us like acid rain. The problem is that we don't really like that concept, do we? This culture really opposes that. An angry God? What could be more off-putting? We don't want an angry God. We don't want to picture God as angry with sin. Now, people have no problem with their own righteous anger. They just refuse to extend the same courtesy to God. So they cry foul when a politician steals money. They rage when a man uses his position of power to sexually abuse a woman. They are filled with fiery wrath when a minority is shot by a prejudiced cop, when a murderer gets off on a technicality, or when the poor are exploited. They get angry, righteously, and they are happy to express such anger. But God? No, God's not allowed to be angry. He can only be docile and loving. We have decided Only this God will do. But could it not be that our wrath against injustice, our human anger when we see injustice, could it not be that that is a faint reflection of the God in whose image we are made? You can invent a flat-line God in your mind, a God who is never angered by sin, but no such human being exists. And no such God exists either. God is angry with sinners because God is God. 
He is holy. He is pure. He is sinless. He is righteous. And we are not righteous. And His anger is excited by that sinfulness that is innate to us. Homing in on the specifics, God is angered with people, verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's assessment, people pursue their godless ways and thereby suppress the truth. It's hard to know if what comes first, the suppression of truth to the godless ways, but here the stress seems to be on the godless ways lead to the suppression of truth. The more that we find interest in our own sensual desires, the more we want to suppress the truth of God. We don't want to hear that message. So God reveals His greatness, but people hold the truth down. They cover it over. They dismiss God's presence and power. Then at verse 19, Paul defends this assertion by offering proof of this suppression. What do you mean, Paul? Here it is. For, for his invisible attributes, I'm sorry, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God gives people a clear perception of the reality of his presence in the universe. This truth is not hidden. It stands on ready display everywhere. In what sense? Verse 20, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the created universe announces God's infinite power and divine nature. The splendors of the earth, the vastness of space, the glories of nature trumpet the existence of God, the power of God to bring this into being. And what do people do? They walk around in God's creative wonders, these wonders that are singing at them all the time, and they see nothing. God is great and greatly to be praised. The only reason we don't see that in the trees and the grass and the lakes and the sky and the stars and the mountains, the only reason we don't see that is we are deaf to the song. We are blind to the picture. We are heartless to the glow of glory that is everywhere around us. If you've been... Uh, often on airlines flying somewhere here or there, there's, um, I always bring something to do, to read, to concentrate on, and I've become fairly practiced at ignoring the flight attendant's demonstration of how to stay safe on the aircraft. Some of you know that what, what that's like. and I always feel a little guilty about it because I know they have a job to do and it's a good job, but I've heard it all before and I just try to tune it out. But it's loud. You know, It's like right there in your face and there's people doing things right in front of you and, and, and you have to concentrate away from the message that's being announced to stay with your book or whatever you're doing. That's a sense... That an illustration of how people look at nature. Of how the fallen world just tunes out the noise. God is great and greatly to be praised. That's what nature's song is and we find ways to just suppress it. 
People don't take it to heart. This revelation is so crystal clear, however. It's so clear. Even though we may not even perceive it fully of how clear it is, God has revealed that it is clear, that it is announcing His glory. Notice the end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. It's that clear. Natural revelation cannot save someone, but natural revelation condemns everyone who does not see the God of creation. Natural revelation, the world that has been made, God revealing Himself as the artist, that cannot save. It's not going to bring someone to Christ. It's not going to rescue someone from sin and bring them to glory. It doesn't have that capacity. Let me illustrate it. You're exploring in a cave. And it's really an interesting place and the sunlight is kind of coming through the entryway and you just get to where it just gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and you get to the point where you just say, I just don't think I can go any further. I've taken this to the very end. And you hear some dripping. There's some water and you're kind of just looking around wondering where this water's coming from and your feet hit a wet stone and you slide about 40 feet down and you're really scared because now that sunlight's gone you're in the darkness and you're feeling around to try to get back up that slope and you realize there's water running down there and never in a hundred years are you going to get back up the 40 feet that you came and feeling around in the darkness you find this big, huge flashlight. And you turn it on, and there's a relief there. There's, there, there's something to that. It, it's not going to get you up back to where you belong, but it's, it's helpful. It's a relief. And you realize somebody put that flashlight there. Somebody who, on some level, it maybe knew what might happen, and they're trying to help me, and, and I, I, I've got this light, and I can see, but you know what the flashlight does not do? It doesn't tell you where to go. You can get through this cave. There's a way to safety, and now you have the flashlight to see, but you don't know which path to take. That's natural revelation. Natural revelation is a light. It says that God is, is that He is there, and it says much more than this little flashlight. It's, it's a glorious message of His presence. But that flashlight cannot tell you the path to take, and natural revelation cannot point you to Christ. It can just say there is a God, He is great, and He's to be sought. But what happens with that flashlight? With the flashlight of revelation in people's godless unrighteousness, they look at this light and they say, this can't tell me what path to take. And they get mad and they throw it down a crevice and break it to pieces and say, it's useless to me. In anger, in bitterness, in frustration, they throw it away. Not realizing that if they opened up that flashlight, inside is a map with the way out. 
but they suppress the truth. They throw it away. I don't need this thing. It's not doing me any good. Natural revelation will never point you to salvation in Christ, but it will point you to the answer. But where that answer is given, they suppress the truth. That's God's charge. Mankind willfully suppresses the truth that God reveals about himself in nature. The second charge, mankind willfully exchanges the glory of God for idols. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God. Not like a believer. There is a sense in which they do not know God. Not intimately, not redemptively. But make no mistake, the lost have some knowledge of God. Again, in the analogy, they know someone put the flashlight there. They can look to the heavens at night. They see the beauty of a pine-rimmed lake under a blue summer sky. They know in their conscience that God is. But suppressing that truth, stifling their conscience, they do not glorify Him. Verse 21. What horrible words. They did not honor Him. As God. The outcome is that they become futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish hearts are darkened. Verse 22 claiming to be wise, they become fools. In spouting their human wisdom, they merely display their profound ignorance. They get together, as it were, in a group and all celebrate that they've thrown the flashlight away. That useless, worthless thing. And they celebrate it. But in their great wisdom, they do nothing but display their utter folly. Verse 23, And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Looking in a classic way overall at all of humanity, this is the end. This is an ignorant, deeply immoral, and utterly depraving exchange. The exchange of God's glory for idols. And today those idols may be cars and houses and trips and investments or false religions. It might be the primitive bowing down to an actual idol or it may be an idol of the heart. But what do you see in that classic image? What do you see where some, in some remote place here is a pagan taking a block of wood, carving it up, creating it into an idol, covering it over with a precious metal, bejeweling it in some ways, putting it on a table, lighting candles around it, and getting down on their knees and worshiping this idol. What do you see? How do you read that? It's easy for us to say, well, there's a person who's really seeking God. They're in their blindness. They don't understand, but they're seeking the God that, that, as well as they know how. Is, are these worshipers seeking God? What this text reveals very clearly is the answer is no. They're running from God. 
Let me illustrate it this way. You have a young man who says, I really want to be married. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I, I really, I so want to be married that I want to get as close to marriage as I possibly can. So I'm going to get as close to marriage as I possibly can by giving myself away to pornography. That's getting close to marriage. And what do you say? No, that's running from marriage. That's getting about as far away from it as you can bring yourself to be away from it. In like manner, getting down and worshiping an idol isn't getting close to the living God. It's running away. It's getting about as far away as one can go. And we need to read it that way and understand it that way. False religion is not better than no religion. It's the same. In some ways it can be worse because we're running away from the living God and pursuing our own idols, our own things that bring pleasure to us, our own things that are the ultimate value in our lives. It's all an exchange of the glory of God for small things. God's wrath burns against mankind for suppressing His truth and denigrating His glory, taking His glory and exchanging it for small gods. Secondly, we find that God's wrath turns mankind over to the tortures of their sinful passions. Where we have the divine charges in verses 18 through 23, we now have the divine judgments that are beginning now in this world as people turn from God. How does God look at it? Here's His assessment, His judgment. Mankind is turned over to impure and dishonorable sexual passions. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up. Therefore, notice that word in verse 24. Therefore marks God's response to a world that suppresses the truth about Him and exchanges His glory for false gods. Therefore He gives them up. Notice that same phrase in verse 26 and in verse 28. It's a theme now that runs through verses 24 to 32. God gives them up. The idea of giving up is to turn over, to deliver over, as when we hear that a criminal has been turned over to the authorities. It's in that sense. God turns them over to what? To their own lust. He gives them up, turning them over to what they want. That's the judgment that has already begun. To deliver over to their sin. Verse 24 continues. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The lie is the replacing of God in His supremacy with idols that are supposed to please us and help us and encourage us. That's the lie. It's a folly. But after then this doxology, it's the Creator who is blessed forever. Paul returns to his thought, clarifying what does he mean by dishonoring their bodies among themselves. 
Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. We see an exchange again. Verse 23, what is exchanged is the glory of God for idols. Verse 25, what is exchanged is the truth about God for a lie. In verse 26, we find another exchange. The natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. So the glory of God exchanged for idols is now women exchanging natural sexual desire for and function for unnatural ones. And men likewise, verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. What does God see as He evaluates mankind from heaven's throne? What does He see? He sees homosexual activity as violating His creative design, the natural consequence of exchanging His glory for false worship. This is in some sense Exhibit A, as it's laid out here in Romans 1, and it's not the end of the conversation. But it's set out here at the outset as an example of what God sees. He sees this activity as violating His creative design. And notice the text says in verse 27 that they are consumed with passion. There's no denial of the intensity of the passion. There are people with same-sex attraction just as there are people with heterosexual attraction. And it's strong. The reality of passion is no justification of its expression. Homosexual desire must be confessed as sin. It must be rooted out. Just as every heterosexual desire outside of marriage must be confessed as sin and rooted out. All of us have a storage locker full of all sorts of desires that we must deny as the followers of Christ in the sexual realm and all the way past into every other realm of our lives. We have desires that we must deny. We must say no. We must rest in God in faith, walking with Him and not doing what we really want to do sometimes. That's true for all people. But back to the point, God sees homosexual relations as evil and those who fall into these as receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. What does that mean? They're receiving the due penalty. I don't think that means that they get a sexual disease. Well, that could be part of the conversation, but I don't think that's what he's aiming at here. I think what he's aiming at is something that's a lot harsher. And that's that the harm that comes, the evil that comes, is that they find pleasure in a partner of the same sex. That is itself a due penalty. I realize, and we realize, just how this world rages against what God sees. 
And the mantra, of course, of the homosexual agenda is that what is going on here in this auditorium today is hate speech. There's hatred toward individuals made a certain way. We don't like them. We hate them. We speak against them because there's this deep, hateful orientation to them. Let's come closer, and I would even say in a completely different direction, to what's closer to the truth. It's not hatred at all. It's sorrow. It even verges, perhaps on some level, to pity. Because what we're seeing here is that God gives them over to the due penalty, which is that they have these desires. Like we might think of a drug addict or an alcoholic. We see the control, that there's a desire. What they want is leading them away from good and from what is best for them. And there's a level of concern and sorrow and pity. I feel badly that you find pleasure in such acts of evil. And in such cases, anger may be a responsible reaction to where there is insistence on depravity. And there are probably few of us who haven't gotten into that somewhere in the realm of alcoholism or drug addiction or some other type of life-controlling desire. There's there's a, a pity, there's a sorrow, and some places it spills into anger. Why do you continue to do this? Why do you continue to go there? We're not God, and we can't look at this in the way that God does. Our anger is not holy, as His is often. But there's not a matter of hatred here whatsoever. There is a direct submission to what God has said, this is how I see it. And there really is no other answer. There's no other assessment that ultimately matters but how the Creator sees it. And He is saying, I didn't make that. I didn't create that. But I have in my judgment that is already spilling over into this world, let them go to find such pleasure, to find such drive. It's the due penalty of their rejecting me as their creator. And the question comes in again so often here, why do Bible-believing Christians make so much out of sex? Isn't it, is it really that big of a deal? Why do we make so much of it? The answer is a long one. I give just a short one here. But sex is one of the most objective evidences of whether I choose to find my pleasure in God or in myself. Whether I choose to submit my will to Him and to live life that way, this is just one very objective area of our lives. And it affects every one of us, not just some with some certain desires and not others, every one of us. Very objective, very clear, it is very strong, and it evidences whether we are willing to submit to God or not. It's a place of conviction, it's a place of change and growth. It's a big deal because it's a big deal. God made us this way, and He gives us His law, He gives us His purposes, and He calls us to honor Him in it. We will submit to His will or we will follow our own. 
What is going on in this world, let's get it straight, is not hatred with this whole concept of homosexuality and the church's relationship to it. This is not hatred. This is an act of submission to the Creator's will. And where that comes with ridicule, let's remember, it's not the world rejecting us first. First of all, it's a world rejecting God's glory and suppressing His truth. When we line up with God, we're going to get hit. But it is with God. It's not a certain orientation, a certain people, a certain controlling agenda. It's a submissive agenda to the Creator's will and purpose. Deepen your roots in this text. Don't allow this world's message to soften what God has not made soft. What He has said starkly and firmly is where we must stand if we are a true follower of Christ. The next divine judgment, verses 28 through 32, is that mankind is turned over to a debased way of thinking and to immoral living a bit more generally. Verse 28 And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He turned them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I think that's pointing backwards to what we've just seen, but I think it's pointing forward to what he's now going to talk about. God turns them over to sin, to debased thinking leading to unrighteous ways. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. The word meaning wickedness or depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Heartless having the idea of not having even normal human affections for family. I mean, that's just the newspaper. That's just the CNN feed right there you're looking at. That's what that is. We see it everywhere, every day, this rebellion against the ways of God. This sinful presentation at every turn. As our holy God looks down on this world, He sees all manner of unrighteous living and moral corruption. And this is a quick aside, but it just speaks to His mercy and to His grace. This is so ugly. It's so horrifying to Him in His purity and in His holiness. It's only His mercy that holds back His judgment to end it all now. In fact, which one of us doesn't see ourselves in this list? In our own natural state, in our own self-centered reliance, this is us. This is who we are. This is how we break the law of God. And he looks at it and is angered. His judgment is piqued. His assessment is very hard. Verse 32, finalizing, he says, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
There's two parts there. They know that this is deserving of death. Now, I don't know that people think about it that way, that they could articulate this very well, but there's a a sense in their conscience that the God of judgment, that first of all, the wages of sin is death, and the God of judgment can rightly bring death down upon me for my sinful ways. The conscience speaks that to some degree, even for unbelievers. They know they're deserving of death. They know that there's the judgment of God. They're turning away from that judgment. But what is more, they're not happy simply turning away from God and doing what He says not to do. They're not finished until they celebrate it with others. In the face of the conviction that God is and is a moral judge, they become very good at suppressing the truth. But let's remember that until a conscience is entirely cauterized, the unbeliever's conscience is on God's side and ours. It reminds them of their accountability to God. Now as you share the gospel with someone, as you talk to them about breaking God's law, as you talk to them about the fact that they are rightly judged by God, they may lash out at you. They may not like that idea at all. But again, that, that's just more evidence that a conscience is there and alive. They really don't care if all you're doing is talking about myths that don't have anything to do with them, but they get angry and they resist because their conscience is speaking. But again, sadly... The second part of verse 32, the rebellion is never complete until people join forces to celebrate their sin. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is, I think, God's interpretation, for instance, of gay pride parades, of pro-abortion rallies, A celebration of the flesh that takes place at so many dances, parties, concerts, nightclubs, and shows. The gathering together to celebrate the rebellion. Man's rebellion against God is never finished until sin is celebrated. And man joins together. People join forces together against the Lord and His anointed. This is what God sees. Wow, this is ugly. This is about as dark as a text can get. In some respects, this passage is entirely exhausting. It can even just leave us depressed. But I think we need to look at this revelation as a bitter-tasting medicine. It's really hard to swallow, but it's absolutely necessary to restore health. The truthful diagnosis, the righteous divine charge, and the just divine judgment is that mankind is naturally depraved. We are in our sin bent against the glory of God. We are turned away from His law. We break His will. 
We do not trust Him as we trust ourselves and we pursue pleasures on our own terms, not on His. We're infested with sin, darkened in mind, in rebellion against Christ. And how do we respond? I mean, in the, in the face of this really harsh view of humanity, blind optimism is not going to cut it. Just seeing the good. I just choose to see the good in people. Well, there's a level where that's good, and there's a level where that's joining the rebellion. And it's not going to do any good to put a psychological spin on it. People are victims. They're suffering environmental problems and and circumstantial problems. And so they act out these wrongs because they've been psychologically damaged. It's just not going to cut it. Not the way that God sees it. God's assessment is entirely through and through a moral one. Mankind suppresses his truth, denigrates his glory, exchanges truth and wisdom for moral falsehood and folly, and pursues all manner of unrighteousness. This is the reality. And I think if we're thinking, it leads us to ask, well, should I not too then be angry? God is angry. The anger flows through this passage from beginning to end. Should we not be angry? I think there's a sense in which, yes, at times we certainly should. But let's also remember that we're among the rescued, and that should affect our orientation a bit. We must also remember that time, circumstances, our humanity limit us to this time together around these verses. There's a lot more to come, isn't there? Remember, we took with us here verses 16 and 17. Is God angry with the wicked? Yes, indeed He is. Does God love the world? Yes, indeed He does. There is a power in the message of what God has done to rescue us from this. That's power. It's not a hopeless picture of humanity. It is an explanation of why the righteous will live by faith and not by the works of the law. And I'm pretty confident that there's at least some of you here that have come and you don't get that. You're working against that. You think that you are saved by being a good person. Verse 17 says the righteous will live by faith and verses 18 and following explain why that's the only way we'll be saved. Because there is a depravity, a wickedness that is deep within us that will never satisfy the holiness of God. But there is good news. And that's that righteousness can come to those who live by faith. Who put their faith and their hope in this message of what God has done for us. Not in what I am doing to please Him. So it's not a hopeless picture whatsoever. But it's a reminder that salvation is not found in nature and it's not found in the human heart. It's found only in Christ. And so if looking at this sin that's listed here in this passage and knowing that it's just a reflection of much more, if you see yourself in this and you say, I know I'm getting the sense, matter of fact, maybe even before this day, you've really thought that you can please God with your good works. But right now, 
in this place, you're saying, I, I'm getting the fact that I can't do that. And there's a sense of conviction when you read these words of gossips and slanders and haters of God and haughty and boastful and inventors of evil and disobedient to parents and foolish and faithless. That, kind of, that, that list begins to get into you and say, that's me. I want to say to you, that's good. When you come to see yourself for who you are, you're at the doorstep of coming to see who Jesus is and what he has done. And to find the good news not inside of you and not in looking at the stars and nature, but in looking at the message of Jesus Christ who stood in your place to pay the penalty of all of your sin and to defeat death in your place. For those who know Christ as Savior, this is the darkness from which we've been rescued. Rescued not because of anything that we have done, but rescued by faith in what Christ has done. As Jonathan Edwards put it, you contribute nothing to salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And this chapter reminds us it was necessary. And so we sing. And so we give thanks. And so we glorify God. And so we don't suppress His truth. Even when the world is telling us at every turn, suppress it. We say no. We'll announce it. We'll live it by His grace. We will celebrate it forever. This world's passing. And those who set the standards and say this is the way that it's, it's going to be, they're only here for a short time. We will stand in the presence of the Lord. We will fellowship and work and live in His presence forever. Never again will anyone suppress the truth. So now we, by faith, with a vision to that world that is to come, say in a world that is bent against His truth, it's life, it's real, it's hope, we believe it. And we stand with Christ. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, for help to stand against the world that's so bent against your will. We just think of the philosophies of the day, of the interests of the day of what is supported and praised and celebrated with the belief that you have not created the universe, that you are not the creator with whom we must be reconciled and to whom we must give account, and with the belief that we can chase any passion that we want. Lord, we live in a a broken world, and you've made that clear. But I pray for your people that we will stand with you. I pray that you would give us the grit, the backbone, but not in human flesh, but in a dependence upon you that sees your word as the truth and honors and obeys it no matter what anybody else says. Please give that to us as a church. Don't let us be dragged downward. Don't let us get comfortable 
with sin. I pray that this discomfort, this hatred of sin would ever be marked by an increasingly loving response to those who are caught in it. Lord, may we take out of the lips of this world all charges of hatred. And may we put into their sight lives that are lived with faith and hope and love, pointing people to salvation in Christ. Help us as believers to that end. For those who know not Christ, for those who are rightly judged because of their sin, may they see that Christ took that judgment. May they trust Him today, we pray, through Jesus. Amen.